Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. You can save costs, you can you know, increase productivity and all those things. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's excellent, excellent stuff. We may be getting micro expressions and then assuming, oh, that's going to influence the choices that they make later or that they're making right now. And I have no doubt that that is sometimes true. You know, uh, I personally think targeted marketing, while it looks creepy at first, is kind of nice. I'd prefer to hear about relevant information than irrelevant information. So, Colin, we are lucky enough to have with us today uh, one of my good friends from the marketing academic field. We have Bill Hedgecock, who's an associate professor of marketing at the Carlson School of Management at the University of Minnesota. Bill is one of these, this is a word we've used on the podcast before, Bill's kind of a polymath. Uh, He's good at a lot of things. Uh, He does a lot of kind of the typical psychology-based research that a lot of us do. But he's also one of these golden unicorns in the field who's also an expert in neurology and kind of neuromarketing, how the brain works and interacts in our decisions. And there are really only a very few handful of academic marketers who can claim expertise in that domain. And Bill's one of the few of them. And so we're very happy to have him on the podcast. Thanks, Bill, for coming. Well, thanks for having me. And Bill, I've always wanted to meet a unicorn. So it's really good. Not just a unicorn. I think I said golden (laughs) unicorn, which is like even more. I think it's the first time I've been described as a golden unicorn. So thanks for that. (laughs) Even my seven-year-old daughter hasn't, hasn't called me that. So... I'm I'm starting a thing. It's going to be your thing now. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. We've actually obviously had a a number of conversations and we've been talking about this, what we call authentic emotion measurement, which is, you know, facial recognition, facial expression. And I know you know a hell of a lot about this. So we thought this would be a good podcast to, to talk about. You know, is facial recognition, facial expression and the differences and, you know, is it creepy? Is it just the future? So, you know, what maybe we start off by just trying to understand what's the difference, therefore, between facial recognition and facial expression? Well, that's a good question. It's good to start with that, I think, because there's a lot of confusion about the two. So facial recognition, the basic idea here is that I can take someone's image of their face and match it to other images, right? Where facial expression analysis, what we're trying to do is figure out based on what your face looks like now, what sort of emotion you're expressing. The two technologies start similarly. So the techniques both involve identifying that there actually is a face in a screen or on an image. It also, they both end up needing to identify things like, where is the face on the image? What direction is it facing? Both of them end up having a certain amount of of necessity to identify landmarks, like for example, where a nose is or the ears or something like that. But once you get to that point, the two technologies start to deviate. Right. 
at this point, the idea with facial recognition is I'm going to take all these landmarks and see if I can match them to other images. And I guess I should say, I'm not an expert in facial recognition, but I, you know, I've, I've had to learn something about it. What I can say is, all these companies use different ways of matching faces. Right. But the basic idea is looking at landmarks, where the ears are, where the nose is, the mouth, or where they are in relationship to each other, even maybe identifying marks on your face. Again, uh, you know, I, I think most people, for example, have experience with this with their photo software or like Facebook. Yeah, uh, yeah. They'll match your photos, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, and, good example. Yeah, good example. Yeah. yeah. And that's uh and every day or or I have a Google photo on my phone and sure. uh, it'll go through automatically and do these matches. Facial expression analysis, people have less exposure to typically. Again, the idea here is once I take these landmarks, I can go through and say, well, is the person showing joy? or sadness, or anger, or something like that. Let me just stop and just put this from a layman's perspective and and check that I'm right. So facial recognition is effectively recognizing that it's Bert Scroggins that I'm looking at, because I know it's Bert Scroggins. But facial expression is going, I'm recognizing the expression on someone's face, and I'm using my words carefully. Uh, It doesn't have to be an, an individual person's face but I'm recognizing an expression on their face and therefore interpreting what they're feeling. Is that right? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. So with facial recognition, I'm matching between people, but I likely have no idea what their expression is or what emotions or or anything else. Where facial expression analysis, it's quite possible, like most of the time, you don't know who the individual is. It could be anonymous, for example. I do have some guess at what the emotion is that they're expressing at that point. Maybe you could talk through some of your examples. So when we were chatting a couple of weeks ago, you were talking about some of the experiments that you've been running. And I know you're aware of some of the applications of this stuff, but it'd be good just for the listener to hear some of these because, you know, overall for me, this is the way things are going to be going. Anyway, I'm not going to waffle on. I'm going to let you enlighten everybody. Sure. So I guess I'll tell you how we started one of our research projects. So how we started it, we were trying to figure out could facial expression data be used in a real way by, let's say, a retail company or some marketer to predict consumption. And while we're thinking about that, we came across some information about how Campbell's Soup does advertising. So Campbell's Soup, you know, most people are familiar, right? They sell the soup that most of us eat. And when Campbell Soup does advertising, they time it based on the weather. They have something called a misery index. What this (laughs) index does is it looks at the current weather. So for example, is it snowing or raining or sunshine? And it compares it to how it was in previous days or like the previous year. You know, and you get the intuition here, right? Which is if the weather's not good now, also if it's worse than it normally is now or worse than it was yesterday, I'm more likely to buy soup. You know, it doesn't seem like a surprise, but it's genius, right? It makes sense. Why would I advertise soup when the weather's nice and it's getting nicer? Yeah. You know, they're much less likely to buy it. But if I advertise it closer to when the weather's bad or when it's getting bad, people are likely to go out and buy it. There's a few things about that that I think are interesting. 
One is that you can use weather to predict are people likely to respond. Two, you know, we're thinking, is it really directly weather or is it your emotions? Yeah. Right. So it could be the weather turns bad and it makes me feel bad. And then I like to feel better by eating soup. And three, I forget what three is right now. It did make me think about Ben and Jerry's actually, whilst you're thinking about three. But, okay. so, you know, in terms of the opposite in the sense of, is it getting sunnier? So actually I want ice cream or am I likely to be comfort eating because of, you know, those things and, and whether you could therefore predict what people would be wanting to buy. And maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but, you know, if you can therefore identify how a customer's feeling when they're walking in the store, you could therefore put up different products or services. Well, exactly. So that's what led us to do a project to study this sort of thing. Like we wanted to know if we could know people's emotions and other relevant factors, could we predict their food consumption? Here's what we did. We had the ability at the school I was at to have a camera that encoded people's facial expressions when they walked in the door. And it was a public space where normally between you know, 15 and maybe even 40 or 50 people would be. We had a camera there anyway. And what we did is we set up the camera to encode facial expressions. Now, I should say earlier you mentioned is this creepy. And the thing is, we actually called this the creepy project. So we have names (laughs) for all of our research, right? And we called it the creepy project because on first glance, everyone's like, neat, uh, but kind of creepy. Yeah. So... Maybe we should talk about the creepiness just for a second. We could come back more later. You know, the reason we called it the creepy project is to remind everyone it is creepy and we need to do what we can to minimize any potential for harm. So, for example, we used a camera that was already there. This camera was in a public setting, so it's not a place where people expected privacy. You know, anything the camera saw, probably another 10 to 50 people saw at the same time if they were looking. Also, what we did is we did it anonymously. So the camera never recorded video. So I can't show you an example of actual participants in the study because we just encoded it in real time. And that's one thing that the software can do. It can take an image from the screen, encode what the expression is, and never record it. Right. So in that way, the university, when they were approving this study, you know, at first it, it set off alarm bells that this is a concern. But because it was anonymous and we never interfered with the person, the odds of harm were extremely low, basically non-existent, right? These people were walking in the door anyway, and, and there, nothing happened to them. So anyway, I, I could come back to that, but there are concerns. No, I, and I think you're right, and I think it's right that, to raise them, because certainly we've had uh, clients who have said to us that they're concerned about these things. But I personally, I, I think it's just, for me, this is just the future. And and it's all we're, all we're experiencing is just, this is different to what we've had before. But, and again, we spoke about this the other day, but, you know, I, I know Walmart are, are starting to look at facial expressions and mm-hmm. KFC and uh, and Ryan, even in Atlanta, checking in on flights using facial recognition. And, you know, my Apple 10, the password on it is basically my face. So you're definitely starting to see organizations starting to get into this and starting to to play about with it. That's right. So I don't think it's necessarily, personally, I don't think it's necessarily creepy. I think it's just different and people have got to get used to it, basically. 
Well, I'm mostly with you. I mean, I think it is creepy in that at first, you know, it seems creepy. I think it's you and it seems sort of personal. Sure. On the other hand, I think when you really look into the details, again, the odds of harm can be low. And I do think one of the tricks is for companies to provide some benefit. And frankly, I don't think this is different than any other information they collect. Sure. Honestly, when I look at the the chance for harm, data that companies collect all the time, you know, and people don't mind, sure. is actually more creepy to me. So uh, companies now know, use your Wi-Fi connection to know where you are, where you linger in a store. You know, the sheer amount of information they have about your clickstream data and so on. You know, oftentimes this data are collected. You don't know. You don't know how it's going to be used. And, and it can really predict behavior and understand you better than things like facial expressions. But again, I I think part of the trick is, can you provide value? Sure. Right? So, you know, like the facial recognition on Facebook's kind of creepy, but hey, it's kind of neat that it was able to match the photos from me before, my kids before, and then I can, you know, I can use that information. Google used to mine all kinds of data from people's Gmail accounts. People were okay with that because they got free email. Sure you know, and so on. So for example, is there some way you can provide value with the facial expression data? You know, imagine you were using this data and someone developed an app and the data could say, hey, you're feeling down and you might want to go out and get a snack, make it a healthy snack. Yeah. Maybe I'd actually like to use this app because it understands me and helps me make better decisions. I remember Ryan and I were, were talking um, a few minutes ago about science fiction. And I remember, a, I think it was a film called Minority Report. Basically, the adverts, so set in the future, but the adverts used to change depending upon you walking along and therefore facial recognition and therefore knowing all the data, therefore they would then display an advert or an offer that was specific to you. Yep. Because they recognized you. Yep. So can you maybe just go... By the way, that's that's not uh, science fiction anymore. It actually does exist. <laughs> it's more advanced than it was in the movie. In the movie, they required a retinal scan to identify you individually. And, that, and as far as I understand, they don't need that anymore. Just yeah. facial recognition alone can do it. So it's actually even less intrusive. The pure advertising examples I've seen have have used more facial recognition, sort of. They're not matching you individually, but they're knowing how many men versus women or old versus young, for example, and and changing it. But I have seen some examples, not so much billboards, but other ads that look at, you know, your expression as well. And again, sometimes, you know, uh, I personally think targeted marketing, while it looks creepy at first, is kind of nice. I'd prefer to hear about relevant information than irrelevant information. Yeah. For example, I, I continually get direct mail that says I should put in new windows, but my house has new windows. Like, there's just no way I'm going to buy. It, it seems like a waste. Sure. But also, yeah, you know, imagine the facial expression data. I've seen examples where the billboard interacts in ways that is kind of funny and entertaining. And by the way, that brings up another way that I think it could be less creepy is if people are just completely aware of it. Sure. So if you walk yeah. up to a billboard, you're standing waiting for a bus, the billboard changes and it's sort of entertaining and you know that it's collecting this information and it's anonymous, you know, people might be okay with that information as opposed to collecting it and not telling them. And one of the ways we've, we've recently been talking to our lawyers about this for a, for a client 
one of the things that you have to do is to advertise the fact that you are using facial recognition or facial expression to tell people effectively that they're being recorded in some way. It's a bit like when you phone a call center and they say this call's being recorded. Mm-hmm. so that they can use it but let's go back a couple of steps because you were you were going through the the story of um you set up the creepy project you'd set up the, you'd already got the cameras in there can you carry on talking through the yep. through the story what it actually told you that's right yeah we got sidetracked on the creepy part of the creepy study but uh <laughs> so here we are we have this camera it's not as creepy as it sounds it's collecting facial expression data And then what we also collected was weather data, right? So again, we have this misery index from Campbell Soup. So we collected weather data. Every 15 minutes, we knew, you know, was it sunny? Was it not? What's the temperature, humidity, and so on? We also knew the day and the time of day. And we collected Google Trends data, so information on what people were searching for, right? So for example, did they type in the word soup or Coke or tired or something like that? And then finally, what we had was food consumption. So we had information from a dining area within the school on what people were consuming. So we would know, for example, were they buying coffee? Were they buying soda? Were they buying candy, cookies, muffins? It was a smaller cafeteria area, but it did have a full variety of snacks to meals right? that that, that people could buy. and, And it had a fair amount of use. Now, again, I should say we didn't have individual consumption. We didn't collect, like we didn't know who the person was with their expression and we could not match that to their individual purchase. Instead, what we knew is what groups of people, what their expressions were when they walked in the door. You know, so we knew, let's say in a five or 10 minute period, what the expressions were. And then same idea with the food consumption. We knew on an hourly basis how much of every kind of product was purchased. Right. So we could, for example, say eight o'clock on this Monday, more coffee was purchased than eight o'clock on the next Monday. So let me again put this in my layman's customer experience language. So you could effectively tell how a customer, you could turn around and say, you know, 60% of customers are feeling sad walking into this experience. And you could then turn around and say, and that's matched up because of the, you know, the weather and the fact that it's a Monday and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So you could turn around and go, they're feeling sad and it's, you know, because of these things. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So, you know, while our primary purpose was trying to predict food consumption, we also wanted to explain why it occurred. And just like we could say, for example, Monday mornings, people had less joy expressions. At this school, Thursday was kind of when a lot of students would finish classes. So Thursday afternoons, they might be particularly happy. And then the idea is, you know, does the time of day or does the weather, for example, affect their mood? And then maybe does mood affect their food consumption and so on? Right. So, again, if you projected that to a customer experience, if you knew that type of thing, then you'd be able to start to change some of those environmental things to affect Mm -hmm. how what people consumed or I guess what they what they bought. I think there's a number of ways it could be used, and, and that's definitely one of them. So could we change the environment somehow? But the other thing, let's say we're not even changing anything, just could we predict better? You know, for example, there's even in this particular dining area, you know, things like French fries, you don't want sitting around for more than five or six minutes. They, they start being you know not so good. Coffee, right? Coffee stores want coffee to be 
you know, only a certain age or they'll get rid of it. You know, salads and so on. You ha- you have these perishable items. If you can predict slightly better, you know, how many people are going to be coming in and what are they going to buy, yeah. you can throw out less food. Yeah. You can have more food ready so people wait less. You see where I'm going, right? Yeah, yeah no, um, absolutely. Yeah, no. So, I mean, you can save costs. You can, you know, increase productivity and all those things. I mean, I, yeah, I think it's excellent, excellent stuff. Hi, this is Colin Shaw. If you'd like to find out more about how you can measure your customers' authentic emotions in the digital and the physical world, then please go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. Were there any results that surprised you, Bill, uh, in terms of kind of correlations between emotions expressed and the consumption that people made? Uh, well, I, I wish I, so we're actually in the process of analyzing the data. We have some preliminary results. So what you're telling us is the intuitive podcast has breaking news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're hearing this first. Breaking so. news. And, and for that matter, Ryan, you know how it is. I'm not even supposed to report some of the details before we let reviewers say if they believe it or not. So you're really saying to us, you could tell us, but you'd have to kill us if you did. Yeah, and, and everyone else listening, I guess, which, which is logistically hard and kind of creepy. So. Sure. I like how Bill's not against murder. It just seems like a half Yeah, he's, not, just, he's he, not against murder, but he's just against releasing data early. The logistics of it are just... Ugh. I'm not sure. Well, I, I like how you... We will uh, look forward to that then. How you summarize that. <laughs> But I can still give you a big picture idea because even though we're still in the process of analyzing the data, when we look at it different ways, there's some core results that just that just come out. And it doesn't matter what we do. We have some very strong results. So one thing I could tell you, and, and actually I, I found this intuitive, like I knew this would happen. Date and time is is highly predictive. So, and I think what's important to realize with date and time, you have a lot of information in there. So again, think about it. We're looking at things like what are people eating? So, you know, people tend to drink more coffee in the morning, right? Or maybe at certain times in the afternoon, but not other times. That's something that's going to pop up. But in addition, you know, because people have normal schedules based on something else, in this case, class schedules, you know, that very much affected food consumption, right? So, you know, classes get out, let's say at 12.50, well, the food consumption at one o'clock goes up and there's certain kinds of food being eaten then that are less likely at other times of the day. But not only that, like many retail places, there are special certain days, right? So actually one uh, specific result I can tell you, because uh, this one I don't think uh, we'll try to publish, turns out walking tacos were by far the most favorite food consumed at this place. Are you familiar with walking tacos? Walking no. tacos? No. Ryan, you don't know? No. No. I expected Colin would have better taste, but Ryan, I, I kind of thought uh, this might be your thing. <laughs> I'm prepared to make it my thing. Okay. Tell me about this. Be, be ready for him. Walking tacos are delicious. They're just horrible for you. So, so right, it's a taco. So you have your meat and cheese and sour cream and so on. But as far as serving it and making it the walking part, what you do is you take a Dorito bag and cut it down the side. <laughs> and that's, that's, those are your <laughs> chips, right? And you just shove all this stuff in the Dorito bag and people walk away you know, with a disposable <laughs> spoon just eating out of this wow. thing. 
I've never been prouder to be an American. <laughs> <Yeah>. than <right> now. <laughs> that sounds lovely. <laughs> yeah. Well, try it. <laughs> try it before you criticize, right? So, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, you know, we're looking at what are people eating and there's this huge blip and it was just a, an order number, right? We didn't know what the product was. We just had numbers. Yeah. And then you look at that and you're like, walking tacos, holy cow. But the reason I bring that up is they were served, I think it was on Wednesdays, right? If we didn't control for the fact that that food was only consumed on Wednesdays, right? I mean, clearly, if we want to say how many people eat a walking taco on Friday, no one because it wasn't served them. Right. Sure. So anyway, I keep talking about this. Why are date and time so important? Right. Sure. Also, think about most stores, right? They'll say, well, how many sales did we have? You know, were sales good this year? Well, what were sales last year? Right. So date and time, you know, yeah. I don't even have the exact number, but we're talking sure. about 70, 80 percent predictive value right there. Yeah, OK. Yeah. So then the question is, what's left? Right. And we know that what's left, you can't predict everything. Okay, because there's going to be weird things that happen that we didn't measure, right? It was a holiday that day or whatever, right? So, or there was, you know, a football game and we did not correct for that or something, right? So of that sort of 20 or 30%, uh, what else can be predictive? And what we found is weather and mood added significant predictive ability. So even once we use date and time, knowing what the weather is, knowing what the mood is, increases our ability to predict what people are going to consume and how much they're going to consume. I should take a step back and say all of these things, date, time, weather, mood, search, if you individually use them, they were all predictive. They all helped. But what I'm also saying is after you control for date, time, which is this, you know, it, it tells you mostly what's going on, weather and mood were still helping us out. So I, I think the, the for me, the mood one is the is the really important one because as you were talking bill i was thinking to myself yeah i'm sure disney would know that you know depending upon the weather depending upon the time of year depending upon the time of day they're going to get x amount of people walking through the park yeah mm -hmm. but the bit that's sort of the intangible up until now has been the mm -hmm. mood part so, mm -hmm. you know, you can guess or you can survey customers to say, how are you feeling? But one mm -hmm. of the reasons that we are calling our service authentic emotion measurement is you're not asking their opinion. You're seeing the micro expressions and stuff like that to be able to scientifically come up with the mood rather than just asking, well, how did you feel coming into, into the park or coming into this experience? Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. I think all measurements have some value, right? There's some value asking a person what their mood is. Because, for example, we've used this software for a number of things. For example, looking at advertisements. That's probably how it's used the most in the marketplace is evaluating ads. When I watch an advertisement and I'm alone, it turns out I have very few facial expressions normally. Right. But you could ask me and I could say, well, I thought that was funny. Right. So so that's valuable. On the flip side, you know, I think there's a number of places where facial expression is advantageous over, let's say, surveying. One thing is, let's say I don't want to admit what I was feeling. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's a politician that I agree with or disagree with, but I don't really want you to know. Maybe it's a sort of off color joke. Yeah. Right. I mean, in that case, maybe both measurements are good. You get my sort of initial sort of unfiltered sure. facial expression.
But then I could tell you, well, this is why, okay, I thought it was funny, but this is why I don't like it, Yeah. right? So both measurements would be good. A huge advantage of facial expression analysis is my ability to measure continuously without interfering in your life. So let me use this example. I like to go to comedy clubs. You go to a comedy club and, you know, good comedians realize it's not just about telling a funny joke, but you have to like kind of build, right? So they have a, a, a sort of overall storyline. Ryan, maybe you could tell us about this. In comedy, there's a, there's a big theory about, and a lot of times they'll talk about it in terms of energy level, yeah. but it's, you know, it boils down to emotion where if it's, you know, all hot all the time, or you're just kind of maxing out people on, on laughs, then they'll, they'll just get worn out. And so you need to like build and then bring the energy back down and then bring it back up. And you want to kind of peak, you want to climax at the end. So yeah, this is very much a hot theory yeah. in kind of comedy circles. So right. So comedians, like basically what we don't always realize, because they're, if they're really good at it, is there's basically an under sort of storyline going on, right? Uh, and maybe it's not a story per se, but they're like kind of raising you up and bringing you down. And, and that's what makes it really funny. Well, imagine if, if I wanted to measure that objectively. So, hey, Ryan, that's a great story, but is this really true? <laughs> Right. Or what is the, right. what are the best storylines? Right. 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 Well, how could we measure that? We could go out and do a survey. Right. And after every joke, I could say, hey, Colin, how funny was that joke on a scale of one to ten? Sure. And then Ryan could tell his next joke. Well, how funny was that on a one to ten? Sure. But it ruins it. Yeah. Right. It ruins the whole storyline. Yeah. You won't get the same response. Uh, same thing right now. And this is something I've tested, too. You know, people use these uh, dial tests to evaluate how are you feeling about what the politicians saying now or how much do you like this ad now? Oh, yeah, yeah. You switch a knob back and forth. Yeah. And by the way, I think they're definitely useful. So don't get me wrong. The dial testing can be very good. It gives you this continuous measure. But I challenge you to do that next time you're watching something, right? Because here's what you have to do. You have to have this dial. And in real time, you're supposed to be turning that dial based on whatever the measurement is. So let's just say overall, are you happy or not about what they're saying, right? So every time they're talking, you're interpreting this and changing the dial. But this is interrupting your processing, right? Sure. The facial expression, I can collect it in real time. Sure. And again, I should get your consent. There's no doubt you should have consent to do something like this, sure. right? Hey, if, if you're going to watch this politician and I have, you know, 50 Republicans, 50 Democrats, 50 independents and whatever, We'll get all permission, but then we can see what their expression is over time and get a sort of a, a measurement that is not interrupting, uh, it it's non-invasive. So you're not interrupting the flow of that experience because it's building up. It's not, you're not asking them to do something, think about something else. They're just, it, it's again, it's that authentic for me. That's a key word. Yeah. The advantage of this is that you're getting their expression uh, without interpretation, right? So they don't have to cognitively say what's going on, how am I feeling now, and why, because that changes how they feel in the next moment. Yeah. On the flip side, the negative is you're not getting their cognitive, right? So, for example, they have a facial expression, and they might be able to explain it to you later, you know, if you ask them why were they feeling that way. But if you don't collect that information, then maybe you lose something. But, you know, again, there's pros and cons of every technique. There's also the, you know, the, the work that you're doing with that consumption study that you talked about. There's these implied correlations that we just assume. So, oh, you're feeling sad. You must want comfort food. And until that work is actually done and documented, for example, we may be getting micro expressions and then assuming, oh, that's going to influence the choices that they make later or that they're making right now. Mm -hmm. 
And I have no doubt that that is sometimes true. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we make decisions in a very cognitive manner. And so without kind of getting the breadth of information and figuring out what exactly does correlate, you know, it's, it's exciting to think about the work that you're doing where now we have some information that suggests that these microexpressions might actually translate into to food purchases. That's yep. really, that's an exciting finding to have. We encourage people to look at that in their own settings to make sure it holds for them. And I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, it's something I'm excited about. I think some people say, well, of course that works. And I said, there are so many things that could have gone wrong so it didn't work that it actually was not obvious at all. Yeah. No. In a lab setting where everything's perfect and you control for this and that, if I can get it to work, you know, the study I'm talking about, this is a security camera. When people walked underneath, you know, it wasn't perfect lighting. It wasn't, uh, they weren't facing the camera exactly. We didn't know, for example, we couldn't match that individual to their food consumption, right? We're just saying this group of people looked a certain way and how did the group consume? It's a very weak measurement relative. But the point is that if this works, seems to have worked, it gives promise, you know, there's something going on here that could be used in other ways. Bill, I'm going to have to um, stop this conversation because the, the danger is, is that all of us, I think, could talk about this subject for, for the next few weeks. Let's be honest, Colin, you haven't stopped thinking about a walking taco <laughs> and you want to stop this podcast. I have my pack of Doritos here. I've just got to open it up. <laughs> yeah, you overpronounced Doritos. That gave the lie. There's no way you get Doritos. Yeah, nice try. So one question that we always ask at the end of these podcasts is, what does this mean that people need to do? So is there one piece of advice that each of you would would give to people when they're starting to, to even just think about this subject? I can start. We touched very briefly on kind of the creepiness factor on that, and that could be a topic for an entire podcast on its own. You know, we hit on some things that can increase or decrease perceived creepiness. Newness is certainly one. How individualized the content is, whether it's of a whole group or whether it's of a, an individual. Uh, how individualized the response is from the marketer. Am I getting a customized, personalized ad or response, or is it going to be on average? How it's used in terms of prediction or in terms of just, you know, are we using this passively or are we actually changing the environment because of it? So we can predict how creepy people will think something is going to be based on all those things. I would just encourage people to be careful. I think Colin's 100% right. This is the future. This is where things are going. There's the potential for very bad PR blowback if this is not handled sensitively. I can argue very logically to you that this is not creepy based on these factors. And if you feel like it's creepy, it's creepy. So, you know... Think about how you're going to use these things. Don't shy away from this technology. It can be very valuable, but be sensitive to the fact that, you know, people respond to it emotionally just like they do everything else and, uh, and respect sure. that. Bill? Yeah, I'll follow up on the, the creepy part. I think uh, Ryan's absolutely right. You know, creepy is a subjective feeling as opposed to saying, is it a privacy violation? I mean, we can just say no. I mean, we can make it so it isn't. 
right? But creepy, it doesn't matter what you do. Uh, it's a more subjective thing. And Ryan, I think, summarized a number of the m- most important ones just to reiterate and maybe add a couple. I think what makes it creepy are things like it looks very individual, like it's me. So to the extent that it seems more sort of general, that might help. Seems like it's private, like I did not mean to to show you this expression. So to the extent that they're okay with that or they give you consent, that helps. Actually, objectively making it less creepy by doing things like having data privacy, uh, making sure you're not recording could help. But again, I, I think one of the big secrets, if, if I go out and look at other times where there's stuff that could be creepy and somehow for some reason people are okay with it, it's the value add part. Sure. So again, look at the facial recognition, facial expression things, just all the data that companies have on us and you know, when are they most okay with it and when are they not? It's when it helps the company provide value for you, right? So I like when I go onto Amazon that it knows what I bought and it gives me better recommendations. Sure. In fact, you get irritated when it doesn't, right? (laughs) I wish Netflix did a better job of figuring out what movies I wanted to watch and TV shows, right? I want them to use that data, right? And, you know, is that creepy? No, because I know they know what TV show I'm watching, they don't seem to be sharing it with other people. If it did get out there, I wouldn't really care that much, right? And it provides value. So, so you're right. I think not that you have to do all these things, but to, to the extent you can address them. And actually, I'd love to hear from other people, like, uh, you know, what other things you could do? Because I'm, I'm sure there's a couple more secret things. But I guess the other takeaway I'd say is, yes, this general idea of, of understanding people's emotions and moods. You know, yeah. uh, I think there's some very obvious times where knowing moods will be important, right? So, for example, if someone's in a bad mood, uh, it might need, mean they need better customer service or you need to help them out better. Sure. It affects what people eat, right? So, oh, if I'm in a bad mood, I'll adjust it by eating something, you know, to raise my mood. But I think there's also some non-obvious things, right? And like your mood could affect some less obvious, like maybe when I'm in a bad mood, I evaluate things less carefully. Actually, my guess is you evaluate them more carefully. You see what I mean? And when you're happy, actually, you tend to gloss over details. It would change your purchases in sort of less obvious ways, but in predictable ways. Sure. So for me, uh, to sort of wrap this up, I, I personally think this is the future. I absolutely understand the issue of the creepiness that absolutely has to be overcome and you know transparency adding value all the things that we've said there i i think are absolutely relevant but what we know is that finding information out on customers how they feel by sending out surveys you know it's just not a good way it's not authentic it's it's not the future uh, and i think that this this stuff is the future with all of the companies that we've mentioned you know walmart kfc Delta, you know, blah, 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 all starting to play into this area. Apple, you know, this is the, the next level down. And I think what my advice to people is they've got to start playing about with it and experimenting with it. Uh, be careful, you know, be transparent, but add value, uh, but they've got to start playing about with it. So I know we're going to get you to come on again uh, in a few a few weeks' time to continue this conversation. It's a fascinating conversation. So thanks very much for uh, coming along today. If people want to get hold of you, how do they how do they get hold of you? The best way is just to go out to our website, so University of Minnesota, and then search my last name. It's Hedgecock, H-E-D-G-C-O-C-K. 
I'm the only one at the university, so uh, they'll be able to find me. Great. Good. Okay. That's some good branding, Bill. Good <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thanks very much for uh, for coming along today, Bill. And um, Yeah, thanks, Bill. It was great. Uh, if anybody's got any questions or whatever, then just drop them through to us at uh, contact at beyondphilosophy.com. That's contact at beyondphilosophy.com. And we look forward to talking to you next week and having Bill back on the show in a few weeks' time. Okay. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.